Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Does the Great Famine Matter Anymore? Over the last decade, Ireland has had countless events to mark the centenary of the Irish Revolution. However, 2022 also marks the 175th anniversary of Black 47, one of the worst years of the Great Hunger. But it has scarcely been mentioned in wider Irish society, in the media or by politicians. This begs the question, does the Great Hunger matter anymore or is it fading into the distant past? In this podcast, I look at the impact the Great Hunger has had on Irish society and the wider Irish community across the world. The episode also contains a bit of a refresher on the Great Famine, basically the major events in a few minutes, so you don't need to listen to the entire Great Famine series. Although if you want to, there are dozens of episodes in the back catalogue on the history of the Great Hunger from about 2016 onwards. This obviously isn't the long-talked-about and not-yet-delivered episode on World War II ration diets. That still isn't ready. Now, you might be asking, will it ever come out? The answer is that it definitely will, but I am going to stop predicting when that'll be. I am still putting the finishing touches to my next series, which drops in just under two weeks. The promo will be out next week, and if you're on Patreon and Acast+, Plus, it'll be out later this week. I'm so excited to finally share with you what I've been working on. But now, to try and answer, if Black 47 and the Great Hunger matters anymore, I want to start with the story of a man called Daniel Deegan. Seven years after the Irish War of Independence ended, a man called Daniel Deegan died at Emo in County Leash in 1928. Known as Old Dan to his neighbours, Daniel was born, lived and died in this small Irish village. Throughout his life... Dan hadn't played any major role in Irish history. He had been an illiterate agricultural labourer on the estate of the Earl of Port Arlington most of his working life. However, Dan was 104 years of age at the time of his death and having been a staunch supporter of the Labour Party in his later years, he received an obituary in a radical Irish newspaper, The Irishman, 
which proclaimed him Labour's oldest supporter. The obituary read, We regret to chronicle the death at the ripe age of 104 years of Mr Daniel Deegan, Emo Port Arlington. The deceased began life as a toiler at 14 years of age on the estate of the Earl of Port Arlington. As a raconteur, he was most interesting. His fine memory recalled vivid pictures of the life of a worker in Black 47 and subsequent years. In the various political movements of the past 90 years, he was well versed and he was unflinching in the support of Labour. At 104 in 1928, this would have made Dan one of the last survivors of the Great Famine and he certainly was a survivor in the truest sense of the word, given that he was drawn from the ranks of the less well-off in society, the most likely to die during the Great Famine. However, Dan had something of a secret. While his obituary and headstone claimed he was 104, official documents tell another story. The 1901 census recorded his age at 66, which would have put his age at death at 93. However, his death cert put his actual age even younger still, If it was accurate, Dan was only 83 when he died. Nevertheless, in terms of today's podcast, his obituary and life are still very interesting. 83 was still a remarkable age in 1928, in an Ireland where life expectancy for men was still only 57. And at 83, Dan was born in 1845, meaning he had still survived the Great Famine, although the stories he told of it were presumably ones he had heard from his parents, perhaps older siblings or neighbours. What interested me most, however, about Dan's story was when his obituary was written, the Great Famine was the event that was chosen out of everything he had lived through. If Dan had been 104, as his obituary writer believed, they could have chosen from so many major events in Irish history. Catholic emancipation in 1829, the Tide War of the 1830s, the Land War of the late 1870s, World War I, the War of Independence and the Civil War. However, it was the Great Famine that they chose as the seminal event to remember. However, this is not really that surprising. In 1928, the Great Famine was just disappearing from living memory, and people perhaps understood its impact and ramifications and implications better than we do today, because they had seen the terrible changes it wrought on Irish society firsthand. Over the rest of this podcast, I'm going to argue that Dan's obituary, which selected the Great Hunger, is correct. And the events of the late 1840s were then, and remain today, the most significant event in modern Irish history. Now for some of you this might come as a bit of a surprise. It's often said that the Great Famine, for example, was rarely discussed even in Irish society, which would challenge the idea that it was the most important event in our history. A passing glance at Irish society since the 1840s would indicate this might be true. If history books were anything to go by, previous to the 1990s, The Great Hunger was scarcely written about. Aside from Cecil Wortham Smith's book The Great Hunger, published in 1962, it was hard to find a popular history of the events themselves. There were also very few public commemorations to mark The Great Hunger either. The 75th anniversary and the centenary of Black 47, which took place in 1922 and 1947 respectively, passed off without any major events. However, other sources indicate that at a community level, the famine was often talked about. I'll return to why this is important in a minute, but the extent to which people were talking about the famine in the decades afterwards is far greater than we often imagine. This can be seen in the stories gathered by the Folklore Commission from Irish schools in the 1930s. At the time, children were tasked with asking their parents, relatives and neighbours about folklore from their local area. 
and stories from the famine crop up in their thousands in these records, indicating people were not only talking about it, but in some instances keeping very specific memories alive. Some of the accounts which you can see online at dukas.ie, I'll put a link in the show notes below, were extraordinary in the detail they passed from one generation to the next. This, for example, was recorded near Borisali in Tipperary in the 1930s. People still tell stories of the Great Famine of 1847. It affected the district very much, for most of the people had no food. Some had, but very little. The district was thickly populated before the famine. The people died from hunger and the rest went to Australia. People still point out the sites of houses that were occupied during the famine and are now in ruins. There is one site on the land of Dennis Young. It was occupied until the famine by a man called Brian Fitzpatrick. During the famine he sold his animals, left his house and land and went away to Australia. It's said that a woman named Biddy White lived near Fitzpatrick, but she died during the famine. And so the account continues. From this and similar accounts, it's clear that in the decades after the famine, people were talking about it. And I think this shouldn't come as any surprise. Because Irish life, and indeed modern Irish history as a whole, events our grandparents lived through, would have made little sense without the great hunger being at the centre of things. It would be very difficult to understand things like Irish independence, emigration, and even the Irish landscape today if the famine is not understood. Indeed, I think the great hunger is far more important than the entire revolutionary era, the War of Independence and the Civil War, and the changes they wrought on society. So far, though, I've kind of skirted around the history of the great hunger in this podcast. So next, I want to plunge into the events themselves and then look at why they're so profound. To start, we have to ask why the events on either side of Black 47 were so different, because it's not famine that really makes them stand out. Famine was, after all, a regular occurrence in Irish society into the early 20th century. Indeed, old Dan, Daniel Deegan, the man we met at the start of the episode, if he was really born in 1824, as he had claimed, he would have known extreme hunger and starvation long before 1845. The 1830s in Ireland were marked by several failed harvests. Between 1831 and 1842, there had been five major crises of varying severity. There had also been two major famines in living memory in 1845 as well. In the 1840s, the very old would have been able to recall the famine of 1782, while the famine of 1822 was something the majority of the population remembered. While the Great Famine was not the only famine, it was also not the worst famine in our history. That dubious distinction falls to the year of slaughter in 1740-41, to 41, which had a higher death toll in a far shorter time period. If you're looking to find out more about the year of slaughter, I have a podcast or an article, I can't remember which, but anyway, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So what was different though about the Great Hunger? Over the next few minutes, I'm going to run through some of the key turning points which will help you understand why I think it is so important. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. So the crisis began, as many of you will know, in September 1845, when blight, a previously unknown fungus, appeared on potato crops in the east and then spread west across the island. It rendered potatoes inedible. However, while around 40% of the crop was lost in 1845, starvation was averted through a series of measures. The Irish population were, by this point, well-versed in surviving such situations, so they resorted to the usual measures of pawning anything of value, tools, boats at the coast, sometimes even their clothes. The British government of Sir Robert Peel also took action and imported £100,000 of food in secret. It was done in secret because a powerful free trade lobby in London opposed government intervention. But it was also sensible. Private merchants would have stopped importing food into Ireland if they knew the government was going to import even cheaper food and essentially undercut the market. However, Robert Peel did refuse to close Irish ports in 1845, a very dangerous precedent which I'll come back to. These government interventions were accompanied by private relief efforts and an absolute catastrophe was averted following the failure of the harvest in 1845. As that year gave way to 1846, many held out hope the new year would see an improved crop. They had no experience of blight after all so they had no reason to believe it would return. Therefore, a large potato crop was sown as the poor did what they could to survive through to the coming harvest. However, disaster struck in the early summer of 1846 when the blight reappeared and what had been a crisis took on catastrophic proportions. Somewhere in the region of 80% of the crop that year was lost. Major starvation set in at this point. The poor who had struggled to survive through the previous winter now had nothing to get them through another year. They had pawned everything they owned. At this point, the future of Ireland increasingly lay in the hands of the British government. And like all modern famines, the Great Hunger became a political event. 
insofar as political developments in London had a huge influence on how the catastrophe developed. Significantly in this regard, the summer of 1846 saw the Conservative government of Sir Robert Peel lose power and were replaced by the Liberal administration of Lord John Russell. Now, 19th century liberalism was a set of economic ideas that argued for as little government intervention as possible. They fervently believed in the free market and that if it were allowed to function, it would resolve crises more efficiently. Now, these were pretty new concepts for the time and Ireland was in many ways viewed as a testing ground. This would be a major departure. Indeed, the prevailing ideas in the early 19th century had favoured and supported intervention. The British government had built up a wealth of experience of intervening in famines in Ireland and India. In 1782, for example, Irish ports had been closed for a short period of time. This experience and these policies were now cast aside in favour of these new free market principles. Indeed, the Liberals of Lord John Russell would take these ideas to extremes in late 1846. They insisted that if Irish farmers wanted to export crops to markets with higher prices, they should be allowed to, and the army and constabulary were used to protect food being shipped to these markets. Alongside this, little effort was made to import cheap food until it was too late. Acknowledging that they needed to provide money to the poor to buy food, they did establish a public works scheme. But this was disastrous, as the population were now too weak for what was often very heavy manual labour. And even for those able to work, the wages could not feed a family in a famine economy where the price of food was spiralling out of control. It was around this point, in late 1846 into 1847, that the Great Hunger started to develop into an event that would transform Ireland dramatically, altering the course of Irish history. Given the poor were all working on public works programmes in the winter of 1846 into 1847, the land had not been planted for a new crop. Also, many assumed the blight would return again, understandably, at this point. Now, despite its name, Black 47 did actually begin with the faintest of hopes. The government would finally abandon their public works programme early in that year and adopt a dramatically different approach. This saw them open soup kitchens across the island to feed the poor extremely cheaply. The soup did leave a lot to be desired, but it helped people survive. Famine deaths, which had been soaring through late 1846, began to drop. However, the Great Hunger did not end here. The poor, who had been working on those public works schemes, as I mentioned, hadn't planted a new crop for 1847. This returned to haunt people. The blight didn't return to any great extent. However, there was very little crops to be harvested. Meanwhile, the British government had not broken with their overall approach and returned to it later in the year. Indeed, in 1847, Charles Trevelyan, the leading British civil servant at the time, was writing a book called The Irish Crisis, which referred to the famine in the past tense. This reflected that the British government's view was that their role in intervening in Ireland was coming to an end. The soup kitchens, which had been effective in reducing famine deaths, had been brought in under something called the Temporary Relief Act, and when this expired in August 1847, the soup kitchens closed despite the fact millions were dependent on them. The winter of Black 47 proved appalling. While there were now large quantities of cheap food, largely Indian maize or milled corn on the cob, in the country, the government refused to provide this food for free, instead insisting that a market of some kind continued to function. This left hundreds of thousands at the mercy of the workhouse. At this point, there were about 130 of these institutions across the island, and they ranged in size. 
Kilkenny workhouse, for example, could accommodate over a thousand people, while smaller ones, such as Abbey Leaks, had a capacity of about 500. These were soon massively overcrowded. The Abbey Leaks workhouse, for example, had over 850 people in it by February 1847. Disease was soon out of control. However, the British government action at this point continued to only make things worse. Workhouses were dependent on local taxation and landlords had to pay taxes for their poorer tenants. Now, the government insisted that this situation continue, which had the very predictable outcome of leading to evictions. If landlords could rid themselves of their poorer tenants, this reduced their tax bill. In more extreme quarters in London, this was viewed as a positive, as it paved the way for clearances and land reform. Indeed, the master of Balliol College in Oxford, Benjamin Jowett, would famously later recall in life the discussions he overheard in these days when he said, I have always felt a certain horror of political economists since I heard one of them say that the famine in Ireland would not kill more than a million people and that would scarcely be enough to do much good. These policies basically led to an economic meltdown and a human catastrophe. The poor law unions which operated the workhouses saw their tax incomes dwindle as the country's economy collapsed and in the West in particular they struggled to provide basic food. However, while many landlords evicted to minimise their tax burden, this cynical move was too late and years of mismanagement and profligacy on their estates now came back to haunt them as they went to the wall as well. The year 1848 was in many ways a forgotten year of the famine. It was truly horrific, seeming to operate with no rhyme nor reason. The blight now returned and devastated the crop. The death toll started to edge towards 1 million people, over 12% of the pre-famine population. One of the most enduring legacies of these events was the massive wave of emigration it triggered, which had begun in earnest in late 1846 and developed into previously unknown proportions in the following years. While it was famine relief of a kind, basically people were escaping hunger and disease by leaving the island, this was an extremely traumatising and painful process. This account from a train station in Kildare records what that was often like. Kildare, March 1st, 1847. A most affecting scene was witnessed in this town today. At the railway station, there were congregated about 50 families, including 30 to 40 young children, waiting for the 10 o'clock train from Carlow to Dublin. These persons were principally from the neighbourhoods of Timahoe and Stradbally in Queen's County and were en route to Liverpool to take passage to America. The majority of them, male and female, appeared to be from 30 to 40 years of age. On the arrival of the train, they took farewell of their fathers and mothers, some of them upwards of 80, who had accompanied them so far, and the cries and lamentations at the separation was heart-rendering. So much so that several of the respectable passengers by the train who witnessed the scene were melted to tears. Now experiences like this embodied the sense of enforced exile many of these emigrants felt. They were being forced to leave their kith and kin. If they survived the voyage to America, and in 1847 over 20% of those who chose the cheaper route through Canada didn't, the major US cities they went to were often hostile places initially. Meanwhile, back in Ireland, the country was shattered by the experience. The Great Famine did start to ease in the major urban centres in 1849. Queen Victoria visited Ireland that year and was able to avoid any direct contact with famine-stricken regions by concentrating on cities and travelling by yacht around the coast. However, hunger and extreme poverty would continue in the West well into the 1850s. Emigration remained extremely high and workhouses massively overcrowded. Evictions also were commonplace. By 1861, the Irish population stood at 5.7 million people, 
nearly 3 million below what it had been in 1845. Next, I want to look at how these events specifically shaped Irish society and still influence Ireland 175 years later. But first, just a quick break. I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you to everyone who supports the show. In the show notes, you'll see a list of this week's special supporters. Each week, I'm listing about 15 of you as special supporters as an acknowledgement for your role in producing this podcast. If you support the show on Patreon or Acast Plus, check to see if your name is there, and if it's not, it will be soon. I really appreciate that these are challenging times for us all, so I'm so grateful to you for your support. It means an awful lot. Thanks so much. By 1851, the famine had already transformed the Irish landscape. In parts of rural Ireland, entire communities had disappeared. The population of Arras, that's the northwest corner of County Mayo, stood at over 26,500 in 1841. By 1851, it had fallen by over 25%, and then a slow, steady decline through emigration set in. The population is around 8,000 today. That's a phenomenal decline, and even shapes the way the region looks today. While the folklore from Boris Ali, I mentioned earlier, talked about abandoned houses, in parts of Eris and Mayo, there are entire villages in ruins. There was no one remaining after the famine in some cases to pass on the history of these communities and the memory of who lived there. These people were in some instances completely lost. All that remains of them today and their lost world is often the potato ridges cut high into the hillside. While this has left a lonely landscape in some Irish communities, the greatest impact of the Great Hunger was surely though the story of emigration. By 1860, somewhere in the region of 2 million Irish people, about a quarter of the pre-famine population, had already emigrated to the United States. Unlike other emigrant populations, however, these people and their descendants continued to play an important role in Irish life. Remittances, money sent back to Ireland, was central to the economy of many Irish households right into the 20th century. They would also play a central and integral role in Irish politics. Many remained bitter, feeling they had been forced from their homeland by British government policies. And while few, if any, ever wanted to return to Ireland, life in the US did offer them far greater opportunities, they were more than willing to support radical independence movements at home financially. Indeed, trying to understand how Ireland won its independence from Britain is impossible without factoring in the influence and power of Irish America. On the face of it, Ireland's struggle against the British Empire was a hopeless one, given the unequal size of the opposing forces. However, the money that flowed in from the US helped Irish Republicans at home, while perhaps even more importantly, Britain would fight much of the war with a close eye on US public opinion, which did restrain the more brutal impulses of some of their military leaders. While the impact of emigrants was considerable, the Great Famine had also transformed the overall political landscape in Ireland as well. Prior to the Great Hunger, the major debate in Ireland was around the role the island would play within the British Empire. Few prominent voices advocated complete independence. The Catholic Church, for example, which had endured nearly two centuries of persecution, had come to an accommodation with the British government and was increasingly supported by grants. Meanwhile, Irish political leaders had rejected republicanism in the decades before the famine. Daniel O'Connell, the leading Irish politician of the day, did not support or demand Irish independence. His movement for the repeal of the Act of Union wanted increased autonomy within the empire. He was explicit in his rejection of independence. 
It was, after all, called the Loyal Repeal Association, the Loyal referring to his loyalty to crown and empire. After the experiences of the Great Famine, it was little surprise that politics demanding independence did re-emerge in the 1850s. While the famine left many traumatised, the foundation of the Fenians in 1858 gave expression to a demand for full independence through an armed uprising. The popularity of the Fenians is often underestimated. By the 1870s, they had tens of thousands of members in Ireland and Britain. Equally profound was the legacy of the famine in rural Ireland, where society was completely reshaped. The tens of thousands of evictions which had taken place had left an enduring memory and later generations were determined this would not be repeated. So when famine threatened again in 1879, the response was very different than it had been in 1846. The Land League, whose core organisers were Fenians, resisted the attempts of landlords to evict tenants who again found themselves falling into rent arrears. This movement, the Land League, would, over the following 25 years, break the power of landlords in Ireland forcing major concessions from the British government, who provided loans to farmers in Ireland to buy their land from landlords. Indeed, the landlords had been scapegoated in Britain for the famine and their political influence had been limited ever afterwards. However, this move had profound impacts on Irish society. The landlords had, by and large, been extremely reliant on and loyal to the British government. The new emerging farmers who were buying their farms were not. It's no exaggeration to say that Ireland's independence was, to one degree or another, outworkings of tensions and resentments built up during the horrors of the Great Famine. While it may not have been inevitable, and nothing in history is, the Great Hunger did transform Irish politics in a way that made a war of independence possible, and indeed, lightly. But what about after independence? The famine may have been the foundation stone of modern Ireland, but perhaps we can say that the 1920s and the formation of the Free State drew a line in the sand. This was certainly not the case. When historians began to explore the Great Famine in much more detail in the late 80s and early 90s, the emotive power of the Great Hunger was as strong as ever. The conflict in the North was raging and Christine Keneally, one of the leading scholars of the famine, has argued that Irish historians in general shied away from the subject in fear that it might be seen as supporting Republican versions of history. However, perhaps in more concrete terms, the legacy of the Great Famine can be seen right up to the present in terms of how Irish people have dealt with the social and economic problems they have often faced at home. Emigration has remained central to Irish life in ways that is just not found in other comparable countries. The US President JFK famously said, Most countries send out oil or iron, steel or gold or some other crop, but Ireland has had only one export and that is its people. Emigration has been an economic policy in Ireland since 1922. During the economic recessions of the 1950s, the 1980s and then again in the wake of the most recent recession in 2008, emigration soared to a far greater extent than it did in other countries. Indeed, discussions around the housing crisis in the country at the moment has seen emigration again raised in some quarters as a possible solution. So does the Great Hunger and Black 47 matter in Irish society today? Some people say we live in the shadow of the famine, but in my opinion, that does not fully explain the impact these events have had on our society in the 21st century. It's far greater than just a shadow. It's the stage in which Irish history has played out over the last 170 years, and the story of this country makes little sense if the famine is not at its heart. Hopefully, I'll have an episode out next week, and then on June 20th, my new series launches. So until then, Sloan.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 